Yes, and thanks for that great singing this morning. On Tuesday morning, I woke up with a little bit of a sore on my nose, and by Thursday evening, I was at emergency where I spent two hours trying to get some antibiotics, and as you can see this morning, it's still not working. But I wanted you to know it's not a result of sticking my nose in other people's business, <laughs> or as Frank has suggested, it's not a result of some long-term drinking problem. But uh, bear with me this morning, I, it's not contagious, it's uh, just something that I have to deal with over the next week or so. In our study of the Apostle John's Gospel of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we are at the beginning of what has been often referred to as the upper room discourse. It begins in John chapter 16 or John chapter 13, and goes all the way through to the end of John chapter 16. By John chapter 17, Jesus and his disciples have gone out into the darkness. They're walking through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them with you this morning, I trust you do, to John chapter 13. And notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that. A love that continues to the very end. Listen as I read a portion from Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation of the Bible's love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day. And if I, if I have faith, it says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the, sake, to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up, or love is patient. Love cares more for others than for self, or love is kind. Now for the eight negative qualifiers that really describe this patient and kind love. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have, Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Who among us would not long to be loved with that kind of a love? Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world with a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type love, he loved them with a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type love to the end. To the telos. That's the Greek word used here. So at the very least, it means to the end of his earthly life, but can also mean to the uttermost or eternally. It was a preserving, resilient, enduring love, a love that was patient and kind. Let me ask that question again. Who among us would not want to be loved with that kind of a love? A few may even desire to love others with that kind of a love. But not everyone is interested 
in this kind of love. Judas certainly wasn't. Remember that rich young ruler who came to Jesus looking for eternal life back in Mark chapter 10? Jesus tried to help him to understand the requirements or the prerequisites of eternal life. Mark chapter 10, verse 21 reads, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type love. And yet, in the end, the rich young ruler chose to walk away. Love can be spurned. Even a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 type love. So here, in the intimacy of an upper room, in the final hours of his earthly life, Jesus, because of his love for them, was focused on preparing these, his closest companions, for the unthinkable. You know, in the disciples' mind, they had gathered for a festive occasion, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would carry on for the next seven days. I suppose the spirit in the room would have not been that unlike the Christmas season that you and I have just come through. The Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread was celebrating God's miraculous deliverance of their ancestors, their forefathers, from Egyptian slavery. Surely this time in the upper room would have been something to anticipate. Away from the crowds, among comrades who they had spent the last two and a half years intimately involved with in ministry. Now they're enjoying a meal, some fellowship, reminiscing on the good times that have taken place over the last two and a half years, maybe even some difficulties that they've survived together. Everything would have been so familiar and comfortable. You see, at, at this point, Jesus' closest followers were still oblivious of what was going to take place next. Jesus knew in less than 18 hours he would be betrayed, arrested, abandoned, left alone, endure a mock trial, beaten, abused, crucified, and then laid to rest or buried in a borrowed tomb. But the twelve had no idea what lay ahead. As they laid around that low table in the upper room, propped up on probably their left elbow, engaging in the meal that was set before them. When Jesus according to verse 4, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. This morning, we are going to identify a final characteristic of this to the end love that Jesus displayed for his closest companions. And by implication, the love that he has for you and for me. Thus, our theme song for this series of messages has been, Jesus loves me, this I know. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's word. We'll begin at verse 1 of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, 
the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of love and mercy and justice, all maintained in perfect balance. Forgive us when we try to make you into something that you are not. We try to carve images in our own minds that are intended to resemble you, but in fact look a whole lot more like super ver versions of us. Something that we can still manage, manipulate, or and or even in control. Thank you for Jesus' incarnation, God with us, God dressed in human flesh. As we study this episode that took place in the confines of an upper room in the city of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago now, taking the basin and the towel, the Son of God washed his disciples' feet. What an unforgettable and extravagant expression of love for them. May each of us catch a fresh glimpse of what love looks like and of your extravagant love for each one of us. May that empower us to respond appropriately. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Father, give us ears that hear and eyes that see spiritual realities, minds that are transformed, 
hearts of stone that have been exchanged for hearts of flesh. Lives that are offered as living and holy sacrifices. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Over the past three weeks, we've identified some of the qualities of this love that Jesus had for his closest companions when he demonstrated his love by washing their feet. In week one, we saw love that overcomes deterrence. In week two, it was a love that displays itself. PDA, public displays of affection. Wasn't just words or feelings, but a visible, tangible, practical, indeed an extravagant expression of love. Last week, it was love is patient. This morning, love seeks to empower others. They are weak, but he is strong. And because he is strong, well, listen to the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. That was a promise for Israel, God's chosen people. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Remember how Jesus called his first disciples back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19? Follow me, and I will, I will make you fishers of men. That's a promise of empowerment. The culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry in Acts chapter 1. These are his words to his disciples just prior to ascending into heaven. But you will receive power, empowerment. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Samar Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end by preparing them for his departure. Here in John chapter 13, verses 12 to 20, Jesus prepared them for his departure in at least three different ways. In other words, he is empowering them, giving them the tools to survive the events that were coming, and then even beyond those events, days in which would pose a le legitimate threat to their fragile faith, circumstances that would suggest that they were now nothing more than spiritual orphans in a, in a hostile world. A world that crucified the one that they considered to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Certainly, these next number of hours and days would provide the ultimate test for their faith. They needed to be prepared. Look at verses 12 and 15. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you, you also should do as I did to you. Jesus initiates this conversation with a question. And it's a rhetorical question. Record, rhetorical questions are not asked for an answer. They're asked more for the effect that they cause. Once the foot washing was complete, Jesus laid down back at the table, and he wanted to engage his disciples in conversation. 
he asked a question, not looking for an answer, but to engage their minds, to cause them to think. Remember, he, was already, he already answered Peter's question in verse 6. Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he responds, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. In other words, at, at some point in the future, you will understand the significance of what I'm doing right now. But you won't get it now. You're just going to have to trust me. I know what I'm doing. So Jesus' use of this question here in John chapter 12 was simply an engagement strategy. He, wanted it, he used it as a conversation starter. So not needing them to answer or respond in any way, Jesus continued by drawing their attention to how they address him. You call me teacher or rabbi and Lord. Both are titles of respect. Both recognize Jesus as their superior. That is, the disciples saw themselves as subordinates to Jesus. They, and Jesus goes on to affirm their recognition of him as both teacher and Lord. All that gave him the opportunity to express why he really washed their feet. Look at verse 14 again. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You may want to underline that in your Bibles. That is a key verse. Peter's earlier questions had provided a bit of distraction, but created another teachable moment for Jesus, and he took full advantage of that. But here in verse 14, we find Jesus' primary reason why he got up from the table, filled that basin with water, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Remember, foot washing is a menial task in first century Palestine. Jewish servants would never be expected to perform such a duty. Even pagan, Greek slaves would not be imposed on to do this kind of service. It was, an ex it was done in first century Palestine as, a, as an extravagant expression of love and honor and devotion. For someone in a position of superiority to do it, to a subordinate was just literally unheard of. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus has done here in John chapter 13. Notice his argument goes from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus, who they call both teacher and Lord, was willing to wash their feet, he's the greater, they're the lesser, then they should certainly be willing to wash one another's feet. And Jesus wasn't referring to something in a literal way here. He wasn't talking about actually washing one another's feet. But more than that, they should be prepared to break social norms. They should be able to make personal sacrifices, indeed to humble themselves, in order to serve one another. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul seems to be pointing back to Jesus, what Jesus modeled here in John chapter 13 with these words. Do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. How hard is that? The Christian life is not easy, is it? It's not going to be comfortable. It's not an eat, drink, and be merry approach to life. In fact, it will prove a challenge for us. A battle. Every day of our life, 
until we take our last breath. And so if, if you're looking for easy, you'll not find it in following Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, to follow in my footsteps, must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. None of that is comfortable or easy. Denying ourselves? Well, that's surrender. Surrendering the leadership of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Take up your cross daily, that speaks of sacrifice. Living sacrificially day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to the very end of your life, living not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And follow me. A life of, of serving other people. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's not an easy life. The first way that Jesus prepared his disciples was by providing an example to follow. Verse 15 states it, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Matthew 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the difficulties that they will encounter as a result of following him. When he says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. And again, in John chapter 6, verse 40, we find him making a similar statement. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus provided an example to be followed. Not in a specific practice of foot washing. This is not a third ordinance that goes along with the Lord's Supper and baptism. Although there are some Christian groups that do practice that. In fact, the only other mention of foot washing in the entire New Testament is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. And there, foot washing is being used as an example of the kind of humble service that will qualify a widow for church support. Remember those verses in Philippians chapter 2 we read earlier? Do nothing from selfish selfishness keep wanting to say selfish ambition from another translation that I've memorized, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what Jesus was looking for, the example he was providing, was an attitude, a humble attitude that we are to display as followers of Jesus. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17 in John chapter 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who, sent, who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And we know from our study of the book of John, when we see that phrase, truly, truly, Jesus saying, listen up, this is really important. This is not a point that you'll want to forget. Underline this, mark this down, remember it, don't forget. Because he is their master and sender, he is the greater. And therefore, what he teaches should be implemented. That reminds me of that little rhyme. To think a thing and to say a thing does not necessarily mean that it is done. James also 
If we turn to James chapter, let's turn there for a moment, James chapter 1. He speaks to the same thing, that the point that Jesus is attempting to help his disciples avoid here. Verse 25, James chapter 1. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Notice verse 5 begins with but. So let's look back at the verses that verse 25 is being contrasted with. Let's start at verse 22. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. God promises to bless those who will actually respond in obedience to what he has said, what he has revealed in this inspired book. You all remember Ray Atkinson's favorite saying. Remember it? When it comes to the word of God, it's not here to make us smarter. It's here for our transformation. God wants to transform us into the image of Christ so that we start thinking and feeling, acting and reacting like Jesus would. Verse 17 of John chapter 13 is saying that knowing these things is not enough. We have to do them. But in order to do them, we have to know them. These things in this context, look back at verse 14 and 15. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did for you. Obedience invites God's blessing. So the second way that Jesus prepared his disciples was by providing motivation. Who among us does not want to be blessed by the Lord? Look now at verses 18 to 20. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. That Old Testament quote in John chapter, in, in John chapter 13, verse 18, is actually taken from Psalm 41. Let's turn there. Psalm 41. I'll begin reading at verse 5. This is a Psalm of David. King David, and here's his expression. He's obviously not in the midst of happy days. My enemies speak evil against me, in verse 5. When will he die and his name perish? His enemies are asking that. And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel up against me. In other words, a close friend is betraying King David. Flip over to Psalm 55. We see the same kind of expression, again from King David. Verse 12. 
for it is not my enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Or is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me? Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God, house of God in the throng. A close friend, a companion, one who eats with him, in other words, is going to betray him, strike his heel. Does that language bring Genesis chapter 3 to mind at all? Remember the Lord's curse or God's curse on the serpent in the Garden of Eden following the serpent's seduction of Adam and Eve so that they actually took and made a choice to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God curses the serpent with these words. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Make no mistake about it. Judas has made a series of choices in his life that placed himself in Satan's hands. He was now a pawn of Satan. Although deeply embedded on Jesus' team of disciples, he would be used to strike the heel, to betray the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 19 is key to understanding what is happening here. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. You may want to circle that, so that. That indicates it's a purpose statement. Jesus knew the events that were about to happen would be a huge test for his followers. You've probably heard the saying, untested faith is no faith at all. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 reads, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. But Jesus, knowing what was about to occur, and knowing that his disciples' faith was a fragile faith, gave them a heads up. So that they would be able to believe that, he, that I am he, is what the NASB version reads. He, in the NASB version, is italicized. So that tells us that that's the in, translator's insertion, helping us to understand the sense of this verse. So really, it's just I am at the end of the sentence. Believe that I am. It is the same self-identification God used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, when he was speaking with Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Jesus is providing them with information that would enable them to continue to believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, in spite of the future circumstances they would find themselves in. Circumstances that would suggest that, he was a, that Jesus was a colossal failure by giving his closest companions a heads up. He prepared them for what was going to take place. And that would only serve, not only serve to preserve their fragile faith, but would also make their faith stronger as they realized what was taking place was all part of the plan. Already in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, 
Jesus answers them and says, did I, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. John, the narrator of the story, explains, now he meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus chose his own betrayer. It was all part of God's plan. Jesus was providing them with insider information so that they would be able to survive what was soon to take place. And in so doing, Jesus was throwing these disciples, not a life preserver, not a flotation device, but a faith preserver, a faith preserver in the form of insider information on what was about to come to pass. Additionally, verse 20 here in John chapter 13 is a promise of future effectiveness. These closest companions and assembled in that upper room that night have been called and commissioned by Jesus as apostles, which means literally sent ones. And as you read verse 20, it almost seems out of place. And it echoes of that initial calling that Jesus gave these men as he assigned them as apostles. Look at Luke chapter, or listen to Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. The events of the next couple of days would change nothing in this regard. That's what Jesus is saying here. Sure, one of their closest companions would prove to be an absolute despicable traitor. But that changes nothing. They would remain Jesus' representatives beyond his departure, his death. Jesus didn't want his closest companions to be caught off guard. He prepared them. And so the third way Jesus prepared them was providing assurance. Assurance that in spite of what happened in the next few hours, Judas' betrayal, his capture, conviction, and crucifixion, and yes, even their desertion. Peter's denial, not once, not twice, but three times. Still, they would continue to be his representatives as we are, as you and I are, regardless of the betrayals that take place in our world, and we're well aware of them, either in word or in action, when those high-flying evangelical superstars on either a, a personal, a local, national, or even an international stage, and we've all seen them, the world loves to parade those kind of followers and their attempts to justify their own suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. But folks, that changes nothing. We are still his representatives, still his ambassadors, carrying the message of reconciliation. Like those who were assembled in the upper room that night, we too remain ambassadors of Christ. Jesus prepared his closest followers, the 12, by providing an example to be followed, motivation, assurance. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end by preparing them for his departure. You know, God's love is empowering. Let's, let's talk first about maybe some common grace. According to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he defines common grace as the grace of God which gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Common grace is different from saving grace in result, recipient, and source. In other words, these are things where everyone benefits regardless of their relationship with God. Let me give you just a couple of examples 
of how God enables or empowers all people, regardless of their relationship with them. Listen to this excerpt from the Apostle Paul's message in the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, here we go, gives life to all people and breath and all things. Our very lives are a gift from God, an expression of his love for us. Job chapter 12, verse 10 says, for the life of every living thing is in his hand and the breath of every human being. He holds our breath in his hand. Your life is a gift from God. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 says, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is not just the creator, but the sustainer of creation. He will benefit, we all benefit from that. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 said he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. Common blessing. Every human being on the planet that benefits from God's sustaining power. He not only gives us life, but he sustains our life. We can do the things, we, so that we can do the things we do, for better or for worse. God's love is empowering. And for genuine believers, God's empowering love is it just perva- it's pervasive. It just permeates everything that we have in life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, declares our very salvation to be a gift from God. But God, being rich in mercy, because, he is, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And of course, you can go on to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God's love empowers us and enables us to restore our broken relationship toward him. And once that's restored, then look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not freely give us all things, everything that we need to accomplish what he has prepared for us to do? Turn with me just just for a moment to 1 John chapter 4. We're just going to do a flyover of this chapter from verse 7 to maybe 18. Start in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. God's love enables us or empowers us to love one another. Verse 10. In this love... Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the prohibition for our sins. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We become not just recipients, but channels of that love. We're loved to be lovers. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Intimate relationship with God. Confident. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he is so also, so also are we in this world. No more fear. No fear of that Final judgment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and one who fears is not perfect in love. 
God's love is an empowering love. And so how are we to respond to all this? Just one concept, rely on God's resources. Stop trying to live life in your own strength. Now, perhaps there are times when we need to be told, go home and put your big boy pants on. That may be true, but more often than not, I need to be reminded that unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stand guard in vain. Psalm 127, verse 1. Or in Jesus' words, John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I know that 6 a.m. Tuesday morning is early. In fact, to be here at the church by 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning, you probably, you'd have to be crawling out of bed by 5.30 a.m. But this week, the early Tuesday morning men's Bible study and scripture memory group are now celebrating their, the completion of their second package of 12 verses. Committed to memory. The first package was all about live the new life. The second package was proclaiming Christ. And a week from Tuesday, January 15th, we'll meet here at the church at 6 a.m. to begin our third package, which is rely on God's resources. So for each week, we'll memorize one verse. And the verses are grouped under titles. There are six titles and two verses for each group. Listen to the titles of these six pair. His Spirit, these are all resources that God supplies. His Spirit, His strength, His faithfulness, His peace, His provision, His help in temptation. And folks, that's not an exhaustive list but it's a good beginning. God's resources. He provides them as an expression of his love for us. And note that he doesn't impose them on us. They are there for our benefit 